The Granzadillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Hello and welcome. My name is Rick Gibson. I'm the Associate Vice President for Public Affairs here at Pepperdine University. And I'm joined today by Dr. Linda Livingstone, who's the Dean of the Grazadillo School of Business and Management. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Rick. It's good to be here. Well, it's hard to believe, but we've come to the last of our guests in the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. Uh, Tell us kind of an overview of uh, the series so far. We've had a really amazing series this year. We actually had six speakers because we expanded our series and went to Orange County, kicking off with Deborah Platt-Majors, the chair of the Federal Trade Commission. Our last guest was Robert Simpson, the president and chief operating officer of Jelly Belly Candy Company, and we hosted that in Northern California. And we sandwiched that around speakers from the entertainment and toy industries in Malibu. So it's been a really interesting and diverse year. And positively received, I assume. Very positive. It's probably been one of the strongest series that we've had so far, and we've had great response from all all of our participants. I'm sure that's right. Well, tell us a little bit about our last guest today. Well, today we bring you Steve Lopez, who's a columnist with the LA Times. He is certainly uh, sometimes controversial and always interesting, so I know our listeners will enjoy very much what he has to say today. Well, with that, let me invite our listeners just to sit back and relax and to listen to this interview with Steve Lopez, who's a columnist with the Los Angeles Times. Welcome to our final podcast of the year, and with this podcast, we're featuring Mr. Steve Lopez, who is a columnist with the LA Times. In addition to that, he's an author and actually has a movie coming out based on one of the books he's written uh, that comes from some of his columns that we'll talk a bit about later. But prior to coming to the LA Times, he was with the Philadelphia Inquirer. He's also spent time with San Jose Mercury News and the Oakland Tribune, and was also with Time Inc. for a number of years just prior to his time here in LA, but has a wonderful track record, earned many uh, journalistic awards, and is a native of California, which is a bit unusual. So welcome, Mr. Lopez. It's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you. Yes, I'm from the Uh, Bay Area in Northern California. Well, we're glad to have you now in Southern California. You might start by uh, giving our readers a little bit of background on your career and kind of how you got started in journalism and then how you sort of evolved into doing the kind of journalism that you focus on now. Well, um, this um, probably is not the way that I would advise anybody to do it. I was, um, I went to uh, high school up in the East Bay, um, the town which nobody has ever heard of is, uh, Pittsburgh, and they think, you know, of course, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. No, there is a Pittsburgh, (laughs) California. West Uh, Coast Pittsburgh. Yes, I'm sure of it. And to distinguish itself, it has no H on the end of Pittsburgh. Oh, there you go. Um, And uh, so that's where I went to high school, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And um, I went to, uh, because I was kind of, um, uh, you know, just uh, uncertain about my future, I enrolled in the local community college, and it was called Diablo Valley College in Pleasant Hill, and uh, spent a couple of years there and got my AA degree, and um, it was a counselor who said, well, what are you going to do after this? And I said, I really don't know. Um, and she said, do you have any interest at all? And um, I said, um, I said my, my interests are that I, I, I'm a sports fan and something of a frustrated jock. And I like to write. And she said, well, why don't you become a sports writer? Um, and I hadn't really given it any serious consideration. And she 
pulled a catalog off the shelf and flipped through it and said, it looks like San Jose State University has a good journalism program. Why don't you go there? So I did. Um, Interesting how our career paths are directed by such sort of random events. <laughs> I'm telling you, you would think that I would have been a little more focused and directed, but I was not. I was Not uh, unusual, I don't think, for people I that was, age. Well, maybe not, but I went to San Jose State and immediately fell in love with journalism. I loved the program there, and uh, I loved working for the school paper, and that became almost a full-time thing. Unfortunately, it was to the... Um, um, it was because I loved it so much. I didn't pay uh, close enough attention in some of my other classes. <laughs> and the, the paper there was a daily paper, and we worked on it as if we were professional reporters and editors. And so um, I left San Jose State in 1975 and went to work as a sports writer at a little newspaper in Davis, California, um, called the Woodland Daily Democrat. And um, a few years later and a few newspapers later, Pittsburgh Post-Dispatch, Concord Transcript, Contra Costa Times. I landed at the Oakland Tribune in the news department, not the sports department. Um, I found out that um, going to a ball game as work was not as much fun as going to a ball game. <laughs> to just, just for sit. the fun. <laughs> yes. So I, um, I was offered this job as a news writer. And uh, in my six years at the Oakland Tribune, I got probably the best education of my life. And it was uh, maybe an education I should have um, gotten while I was back in college um, and busy with my uh, sports writing career. But the deal was that every day um, I'd be off on a different assignment. One day you're at uh, a criminal court case. The next day you're in civil court. Then you're covering a city council meeting and a school board meeting. And then you're at a homicide investigation. Um, and you just got a little bit of everything. And in six years of that – um, it was a great foundation for, um, you know, I, I, I realized in that time that I really wanted to do this and that I wanted to write with a little more voice um, mm -hmm. and kind of break out of the, you know, um, the straitjacket that sometimes you have as a uh, reporter. And I wanted to write with a little more license. That's something that I, um, I guess, carried over from my sports writing career where there's a bit more of a flair. And um, the editor at the Oakland Tribune was uh, Bob Maynard. Uh, who ran the minority journalism program at UC Berkeley. And uh, he asked uh, if I wanted to try a column, and I did, and then went to the San Jose Mercury News doing it, and then the Philadelphia Inquirer doing it. And it was in San Jose and in Philadelphia that I really began to learn how to write a column. And um, it's a dream job, and I feel privileged uh, even all these years later to um, to have that, that, um, that job where I can drop in on people's lives and it's the same variety that I enjoyed so much as a cub reporter at the Oakland Tribune. Um, I don't know from one day to the next what I'm going to be working on. I mean, there, I'll, I'll be juggling several things at, at the same time. But, you know, there's breaking news and then somebody runs up to me with an idea or somebody calls on the phone. A reader sends an email. So that's the fun of my job is that I get to discover so many different facets um, and little corners of uh, Southern California and uh, – it's it's always uh, it's always interesting and engaging. One of the things I wanted to get a bit of an insight from you, and you touched on a little bit in that, is sort of how you decide what to write your columns about. So I was reading your article in the paper this morning, and you just randomly drew a letter out of your sort of mail bag, and it was about a Sprint wireless. Uh, uh, site and the problems that was causing someone, but that was sort of a random way to pick your column. I expect that you have 
other ways of doing that. How do you come up with the ideas and decide what are people going to be interested in reading? What am I going to want to write about? Sometimes there's no other way to describe it than just uh, sheer desperation. I I (laughs) had taken Monday off because it was a holiday and I was traveling up to see family in Northern California. So I walk into the office pretty cold on a Tuesday and I had one ready to go. Um, but it was, it's more of a Sunday one. It's a longer story, and I, and I needed time to do a little more reporting on it. So when I came in Tuesday morning, I thought, okay, what have I got going? And there were several possibilities. There was, you know, I listened to the radio on the way to work, and one of the school board members in LA Unified was talking about a proposal to have uh, students wear uniforms again. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll just go to a campus and talk to kids on their way in and on their way out. What do you think about uniforms? Do you think it's going to accomplish the things that this board member is talking about? Um, where it takes a little bit of a pressure off kids who are trying to make a a fashion statement and kids who can't afford the right gear to take to school. Um, And I thought, you know, that might work. But then I got to to work and looked at the box under my desk that has uh, unopened uh, letters that have been sent to me. And I thought, okay, let me try this. I'll pull one out. I've done this before. And just make it um, just utterly spontaneous. Um, whatever comes out of that box is going to be my column. And I think, although that's a a gimmicky and and desperate thing to do, um, I like having the pressure on me like that. I mean, I like being having the the deadline clock ticking, and you've got to pull this thing together in a hurry. And I think sometimes those kinds of columns um, have such um, immediacy that the, the readers pick up on that. It's something that I did yesterday. It's in the paper today. And although it's not, you know, the most pressing issue of our time, um, there, there was an opportunity for commentary mm-hmm. on um, our gluttonous addiction to a wireless world. And, of course, it's about this, this woman who finds one day that there's a Sprint work crew um, putting these huge relay antennas outside her house so close to her bedroom that she can hear this constant noise 24 hours right, a day. that horrible noise that drove she and her neighbors crazy. Right, and when she tried to, you know, get some relief, it was, um, you know, she kept uh, getting bounced around at City Hall and elsewhere. So that's I, I like doing that kind of column because people feel defenseless when they have to take on whatever forces there are out there and they can't get an, any attention. And so sometimes the, the column is just, you know, to give voice to the voiceless. And when you play consumer advocate in the column, readers really, really love that. Right. So today, um, you know, a couple dozen um, more ideas are emailed to me from other readers who are – you know, frustrated by one thing or another. And pick up on those ideas. I do have an opinion about these school uniforms because my daughter goes to a school with uniforms and she's in middle school and they're fabulous. No worries with middle school girls trying to stress over what they're wearing to school. Well, yeah, I have have no problem with it. And um, I'm sure there's going to be some resistance, but it's, it's, uh, I think, a, a, a possibly a future column for me. No, it'll be interesting. Well, as you kind of look at the things you've written through the years, um, are there, is there any column in particular or anything you've written in particular that when you look back on sort of the body of work that you've done that you're kind of most proud of or you think was most impactful um, in a way that you feel is important? Well, at this point, it's uh, thousands. It's literally thousands of columns. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of frightening to look back through them. <laughs> and uh, one of the first things you realize, uh, Russell Baker said, said this once when he was uh, putting together a collection of his 
New York Times columns and was forced to go back through them. And he said, the frightening thing is that you realize that you ran out of things to say after the third or fourth column. <laughs> and the rest <laughs> is just recycled ideas. It's, um, and there's a saying in newsrooms that there are no new stories. There are only new reporters. So in some ways, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a recycling of ideas and themes. Um, I think that uh, very early on, um, when I heard um, an editor at the Philadelphia Inquirer um, say that H.L. Uh, Mencken's uh, mission was to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. It was mm-hmm. the first time in my career, which at that point was I was maybe, what, 10 or 15 years into it, when I had any idea what I really wanted to do. And it seemed to fit perfectly what my instincts were, what my upbringing was, sort of um, a blue-collar um, upbringing um, in the East Bay area up in um, you know, Oakland, Pittsburgh, Contra Costa County, a very industrial place. And my dad drove a truck. And um, uh, I, I think that that was when I realized um, what I wanted to do for a living. And I think that uh, through the years, the column um, – has uh, you know pretty much stood for that. Um, I I will jump up and speak up for those who are afflicted in one way or another, whether it's their um, you know a denial of their health insurance claim um, that makes no sense at all, mm-hmm. and those who um, maybe sometimes get a little too pompous or too um, giddy with power who need to have their bubble burst. I'm there for that too. So um, there's been a lot of that over the years, and as far as whether any one stands out. I've got to say that this one that um, this this column that became ultimately a book and mm-hmm. is now being turned into a movie is a rare column for me in that for the most part I've hit and run as a columnist mm-hmm. do this thing and move on to the next and there are columnists who write about the same subjects on a regular basis I couldn't do that I don't know enough about any one subject um, I'm sorry to have to admit but I also thrive on variety and what uh, I think. Um, I look to do is to keep readers guessing about what might be next. And so here comes this column where I meet a guy playing a violin in downtown Los Angeles. And three and a half years later, this guy is uh, a daily part of my life. And the column became another column. And then it was 12 or 15 columns. And then I turned it into a book. And um, the book is now being turned into a movie. They're actually finished with the filming. And so I'd have to say that that one has impacted me the most, and it's the one that readers have connected with the most in over 30 years. And I think the reasons surprised me early on. I didn't see it as that kind of a story. I saw as an act of desperation, again, with the deadline um, looming, that a guy playing a violin that was missing two strings and who was standing next to a shopping cart that had all of his belongings might have a story. And I thought this guy could be a column. And so the column has turned into a friendship, a really deep and rewarding friendship, one that has taken me into worlds that I knew nothing about, classical music, homelessness, mental illness. And um, it's, been, it's been very rich and also very challenging and exhausting. It's, um, I've, um, in some ways, you might say, adopted um, Mr. Nathaniel Anthony Ayers as uh, kind of a brother. And uh, there's a great deal of responsibility that comes with that, and he is—he um, has a, a mental illness that he's um, struggled with for 35 years. And um, so it's not always easy to be with him, but um, I think the challenge is, is probably what makes it uh, so rewarding. 
And the book you're referring to is titled The Soloist, A Lost Dream, An Unlikely Friendship, and The Redemptive Power of Music, which just came out in April of 2008. Right. Um, Talk a little bit more about that, because clearly as a journalist, you're sort of trained to be an objective observer of what goes on. You talked about kind of wanting to transition and add a little bit more of yourself in being a columnist. But clearly in this case, there was a huge transition even beyond being a columnist to being an advocate for Mr. Ayers to really being a deep personal friend, as you refer to. How has that experience changed you in as a journalist, and how has it changed you more personally just in your own life? Well, um, I've broken a lot of rules on this, um, um, and it's exactly what you're referring to, that, you know, we are told even as a columnist you keep some distance. You don't get personally involved in the story, and if you do, then you can't write about it because uh, you're no longer, um, you know, uh, you bring certain biases to it once you're involved in it and you're, you know, writing uh, donations to the uh, mental health organization that, that houses and cares yeah. for him. Um, but I, I set some traps for myself that I really didn't see, um, uh, I didn't anticipate. When I first wrote about Nathaniel, um, readers responded um, in, in ways that overwhelmed me, their generosity and their connection to the story. And I, you know, I knew that it was a good story, but I thought that you know, so many of us just dismiss somebody you see on the street. Um, it's easy to do, and it's, it's understandable why somebody, somebody would want to just avoid someone. I mean, you know somebody asking you for money, and if you give it to them, you feel guilty about what they might spend it on, and if you don't give them money, you feel guilty about, you know, um, going off to your nice new car to drive home to your nice house while somebody is uh, panhandling on the street. And um, I didn't realize that uh, that people would see, um, rather than all of that, um, a story of second chances and human connections and ultimately the power of um, music and art to to heal, to transform, um, to deliver somebody to a state of, of peace and sanity, even somebody as, as sick as uh, Nathaniel Ayers. And people right off the bat just bombarded me with, um, they sent, um, he was missing two strings on the violin. Mm -hmm. And people um, sent strings, money for the strings, sheet music, New violins, old violins, cellos, and when I took all these uh, instruments to Nathaniel, um, I realized um, that I had created a problem for him and for myself. He's living on the streets, and now he's got an even bigger target on his back. He's going to be mugged for these instruments. And so I realized that um, I had to get him into um, housing somewhere and hook him up with a mental health agency that knew what it was doing because I had no idea what to do with I – I didn't know what – his form of mental illness was, how to really relate to him, mm -hmm. deal with him. I had just written this one column, and all of a sudden I've got this this, um, this tie to him through these instruments. And um, so I was up front with my editors about it and with my readers about it, and they kept saying, how's he doing? What next? And so I just um, was, was very clear with readers that, yes, I have become involved in his life, mm -hmm. and this is going to be a different kind of a journalistic journey. Um, I'm going to try to uh, wade through um, this morass, this mental health industry, and figure out how to help him and how to shine a light on some of the issues that he introduces me to, whether it's um, the unbelievable scenes down on Skid Row and just the massive numbers of homeless people. Um, he's going to be my my entree. And so the editors knew that, and, and I knew that, and um, 
And I think it's one reason people have really responded to this mm-hmm. thing. It's because I did make a, a personal and emotional investment, and I think readers have appreciated that. But I think what it is, it's also a wonderful example of how through the work that we do, we can truly impact and change people's lives, even though we didn't necessarily expect that to be the outcome of a particular action or a particular experience right. if we're sort of open to what can come from that. Right. And even more surprisingly is um, not what I did to change his life, but what he's done mm-hmm. to change mine. Mm-hmm. I mean, the soul searching that I've done and find myself, you know, coming up with new definitions of success and achievement and happiness, along with the patience that I've had to learn and the introduction he's given me to classical music and all of the friends I've met Mm -hmm. in the orchestra through him. But I mean, many rewards come your way. And I I was describing this at uh, All Saints Church in Pasadena Mm -hmm. a couple weeks ago. and And I said, without really thinking about it, that it's almost been a spiritual experience. And you feel as though an act of human kindness and generosity can deliver you to a state of grace. Mm -hmm. And that's what it is with um, with Nathaniel. And in fact, one of the, the uh, working titles for the book was Grace Notes. Um, I like that title. Yeah, and uh, I was I was overruled on it. But I but you know, it, it's he's been such an inspiration uh-huh. um, in so many different ways. And you know, I uh, like many people am prone to bicker and moan about uh, you know uh, the 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 various little issues that you deal with in a day. And when I when I laid them up against the issues that he deals with, it so put things in perspective for me. I mean, this is a man who wakes up each day and is not sure what's real and what's imagined. He hears and sees things that I don't. Mm-hmm. And it's a struggle to get through that. And it's terrifying. And it makes him angry. And it makes him lash out at people. And he, in many ways, though, is is a lucky man because he had the music going in and uh, the music has uh, delivered him to this this place where he's you know he's safe and and almost even sane when he disappears into the music he's he's a different person well and as you talk about that experience of being deeply involved in service some people might even use the term sort of mission work in doing something like that i think anybody who does that kind of work at that deep level sort of does realize that they're changed as much through the experience right. as the person is and the mission of pepperdine talks about preparing students for lives of service purpose and leadership and i think that experience that you've had sort of illustrates how that all fits together and comes together in a very meaningful way yeah, that's a good way to describe it. And it's, um, like I say, it's very challenging. And there are days when he's very difficult to be around, but it all it, it does make it all the more rewarding. I mean, I've made a bigger investment and um, uh, both the challenges and the rewards are greater when it's a difficult uh, relationship. You know, much of what you've written about, including the, the story of Mr. Ayers, focuses on some really critical social issues that we certainly face in L.A., but that we face around the country and even around the world. Things like homelessness, uh, health care issues come into that, mental health. You've done a lot on public education and other things. I mean, many of our listeners are people from the business community, graduates of our, our business programs. What role do you think business plays or should have in helping address some of these critical social issues. Well, I think that um, I think that it's 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 understandable that we would look at huge problems in the society, like um, you know um, the the crisis and the challenge in public education, mm-hmm. uh, like poverty, like um, you know um, um, difficulty adjusting to a service economy in Los Angeles. Um, 
which has among the highest real estate um, prices mm -hmm. in the country, um, homelessness, mental illness. And it's easy to look at all that and to decide that they're so overwhelming that you can't make a difference. Um, so why even bother? Mm -hmm. And I think what the Nathaniel story um, tells us and reminds us is that uh, there are solutions and there are ways that each of us can make a difference in someone's life and chip away at whatever problem there might be. Now you take, for instance, the issue of homelessness on Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles, a good percentage of the people who are sleeping on the pavement at night have a mental illness. And we know what works. It's not as if there's a mystery. We know that the kind of permanent supportive housing where Nathaniel lives, which provides not just a bed, but all of the necessary services for mental health rehab, um, addiction rehab, job training. We know that that works. It's worked in New York City extremely well. It's worked in San Francisco. And where it's applied in L.A., it works. We just don't have enough of it. And the place where Nathaniel sleeps at night, it's called Lamp Community, has a waiting list of 700. That's amazing. There are 700 people who go for the day services, whether it's um, psychiatric counseling or job training, who don't have a place to sleep at night. And so they sleep either in, on a mission bed and that's another, um, you know, adventure for anybody who walks into a mission, or they sleep on the pavement. And so I think there are ways that businesses can work with government to, um, to the benefit of each to address these problems. And people like Tim Lewicki, who works for Anschutz Downtown mm -hmm. um, and runs the Staples Center, and they own, you know, the Clippers, I guess, and part of the Lakers and the hockey team and the soccer team. I think they own everything except um, the Catholic Church. Um, has has gotten religion on this subject. He um, he uh, he speaks out when people want to address the homeless problem only with um, you know more police action. Right. And he has said, "Look, you got to go down to these places that are doing this work and see what they're doing, and um, it might help to get out your checkbook and to make a donation to a program that has a proven track record." Um, these folks who end up on the streets, some of them are predators and some of them are just out of prison and some of them are not going to be reformed. But a good number of them have fallen through the cracks in this service economy with outrageous real estate prices and um, poor public schools and you miss a payment and then another or you have a family tragedy. I mean, it's not uncommon to meet people on Skid Row who have these horrible stories mm -hmm. about, you know, a loved one died, a child was killed in a traffic accident mm -hmm. and they went off the deep end. And uh, they became sort of untethered, and they're out there on the street. So there's a lot of that, too, along with mental illness. And um, there's so many needs down there that um, I would say that government and with the help of business can find ways to make a difference. And like I say, it's not as if we don't know what works. We're a business school, obviously a part of a larger university. But as you think about you, – you spend a lot of time thinking about public education. We're obviously a private institution. But as we educate – students at the higher education level, at the graduate level, what's your thinking about things we could be doing more effectively, whether it's at Pepperdine or at other institutions of higher education, to better prepare students to be the kinds of leaders that will help address some of these really critical issues that are out there? Well, I think um, you could get personally involved. I mean, they are um, – I'm surprised, to, to be honest um, – that there are not more ways for um, people who want to get to make a difference to do so through organized efforts, whether it's mm -hmm. through your parish, your synagogue, some social organization, or through a school. 
Um, and I know that there is quite a bit of that, but it seems to me that um, we could use more of a buddy system kind of a thing where um, somebody, say, who's a student at Pepperdine, um, could could visit, um, you know, Step Up on Second, which is one of the very respectable um, mental health service programs in Santa Monica, which has a huge problem. Mm-hmm. And um, um, you don't have to invest, you know, um, hours and hours and hours, but you can make a big difference in someone's life and get many rewards from it. Um, you know, you could, I think, have um, campuses do things like um, run models of what um, L.A. County is doing right now. Supervisor Zev Yaroslavsky um, was sold on Philip Mangiano's approach to homelessness. Philip Mangiano is President Bush's homeless czar. And all of the homeless advocates love him because he gets it. Mm-hmm. He knows what works. Mm-hmm. And he um, is happy to go to any city in the country and talk about what works. And one of the things that he um, um, always stresses is that um, when we talk about the huge cost of these social problems, we should um, realize that our approach costs more than a solid investment in something that would work better. Um, Let me give you a better example of that. If you have somebody who's constantly churned through the system, the police come and pick them up because they're, they've overdosed. Um, they're taken to jail. Um, there's a mental health problem. They go um, and sit in the psychiatric emergency ward. Um, they end up getting sent to jail or to prison. They're tying up the court's time. And they bounce out um, three months or s- six months or two years later with none of the issues treated and at a huge public cost. And Manjano says... Don't do it that way. Go out on the street and find the 50 most expensive cases and bring them all in right now. Put them in supportive housing. Give them all of the help that they need. And it's a big initial investment, but you'll save money down the line. And that's a smart approach. It's worked in places like Denver. And I could see, um, say, Pepperdine students through the business school or whatever other school getting involved in a model through Zev Yaroslavsky's office of doing that very thing, mm-hmm. not on Skid Row, but maybe down in uh, Palisades Park. Um, and, you know, it, it'd be a great um, exercise in, um, you know, both at the business end and the social services end, and they'd learn a little bit about politics. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that there are creative ways for all of us to, um, um, you know, uh, pool our resources and address these huge social problems. And, in fact, they're not going to get it addressed otherwise. It's just too much to expect the police to do it or mm-hmm. the government or Philip Mangiano in the White House to do it. Um, you do need the, um, the creativity and um, compassion from the business community and from um, universities. And uh, I, I think working together, maybe some of these problems can be addressed much more efficiently than they are today. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we've historically done a very good job of those partnerships and everybody's doing their little piece. But to really address those almost intractable issues, it's going to take, I think, as you say, a more concerted sort of strategic effort of partnership yeah. across those different areas to make it happen. Right. Well, this has been a fabulous and interesting conversation. It's I appreciate you sharing kind of your perspective on these things. I kind of want to conclude with just one last question. When you've been extremely successful as a journalist, you are an accomplished author, you have a 
movie coming out that will actually feature you in the movie, uh, played by, I guess, Robert Downey Jr. What's next for you? I mean, where do you see your career going? Do you kind of continue down the same path, or do you see yourself kind of transitioning with another focus in the future? Well, um, what's what's next is that uh, this is still going to be a, a pretty busy rest of the year because, um, in fact, I had a, movie, a, 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 a um, meeting at Paramount. Yesterday, Paramount owns DreamWorks, which mm-hmm. has uh, produced the movie, and we're already talking about how to handle the publicity campaign. You know, the, the movie trailers will be in theaters in mid-August. Um, the the movie is being edited right now by Joe Wright, the director, who's in London, seeing another screening of it today with the producer, Gary Foster. And um, my next few months are pretty full with the preparation for all of this, mm-hmm. along with managing Nathaniel's life. I'm also trying to uh, go back to my own family because I've taken so much time from my job and my family to do this book and to help manage Nathaniel's life. So I'm hoping to get, catch a little bit of a breather here before it picks up again later this year with the movie business. Um, and then after that, I want to find another cause, another mission. Um, I'm, I'm not going to necessarily look for another Nathaniel, but I right. want I want to take on another subject. I don't know if it's education. I don't know if it's um, – I'm not sure what it might be, but um, – I want to do one. This has been so different from what I ordinarily do where, I, like I said, I'm, I'm on a different subject every time I write. I want to get one that I, where I string together um, several columns and uh, learn enough about a subject so that I could write about it with more um, authority in the future. So I'm still looking for what that might be. Well, we will look forward to seeing what that is as you get to the point where you get started working on that. But thank you so much for being with us as we focus in the business school on developing value-centered leader. I think what you are doing exemplifies that in maybe a different way than we normally think about it from a business school perspective, but one that's a very important way. Well, thank you very much. Well, into that interview certainly did not disappoint. Well, Steve is always interesting to listen to and never fails to challenge us in our thinking about what we're doing and, and how we function in our organizations. Well, it has been a terrific season. I want to congratulate you on uh, the, the magnificent lineup that you put together. We look forward to uh, next year. It has been a great year, and we had such a wonderful series of speakers that were very well received by all of our audiences. So we're very much looking forward to rolling out another series next year. I look forward to that. Well, let me invite our listeners to uh, give us some feedback and to uh, visit our website, both to provide that feedback and also to learn more about the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. Visit us at bschool.pepperdine.edu. Until next time, this is Rick Ibsen. Thanks for listening. Why is Pepperdine University's Grazio Dio School of Business and Management considered the smart way for working professionals to earn an MBA? Well, first and foremost... Forbes magazine ranks Pepperdine's fully employed MBA program among the top 20 business schools for return on investment. So financially, it's very smart. And Pepperdine's program is built around real-world curriculum, not just theory, so students can apply what they learn in class at the workplace the next day. So now, does earning an MBA from one of the most highly regarded business schools in the world sound like a smart move to you? Then call 1-800-933-3333 for more information. That's 1-800-933-3333. Pepperdine University's prestigious Grazio Dio School of Business and Management. The smart business decision. And Pepperdine also offers a top-ranked executive MBA program.